Let us pray. Eternal God and gracious Father, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, died for our redemption, commissioned His disciples to preach the good news, and sent the indwelling Holy Spirit in every generation to embrace and proclaim salvation in Christ alone. Arise and defend your church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Shine the light of your holy word upon hearts darkened by error and strengthen the work of Gafcon so that the Anglican communion throughout the world proclaims Christ faithfully to the nations, that captives may be set free, the straying rescued, and the confused restored. Bind your children together in truth, love, and unity, and courage, that we with all your saints may inherit your eternal kingdom through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. A reading from the book of of Deuteronomy. If among you, excuse me, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading comes from one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. 
And a great crowd followed him, a throng about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, If I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing about you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came into the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. And taking the girl by the hand, he said to her, Tabitha, kumile, and it means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told her them to give her something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. All right, good morning. We're continuing our study of Second Corinthians throughout this summer. But first I want to give you a drawing prompt. It's for anyone who'd like to participate. Please draw a parade. Your parade could feature any extras you'd like, but it should have one man riding a chariot pulled by four horses. A parade of triumph for a leader. As we approach this passage, I want to start by asking if you've ever been in the position of just completely missing the point of something. It's staring at you in the face, but you just missed it. Um, comedian Nate Bargetsy tells a story about this. He sets it up by establishing how universal the silent treatment is. It's not recommended, we get it, but Acting like strangers in a small hallway, avoiding eye contact in the kitchen. We've all done it. Then he brings up the movie The Sixth Sense. Now, I'm going to give away the ending, but it's a 20-year-old movie, and don't pretend you were going to rent it tonight. <laughs> the movie portrays Bruce Willis's character as a child psychologist trying to help a kid with a special sixth sense. His wife doesn't talk or look at him the entire movie. When we discover in the end that Willis's character is actually dead, we're floored. 
It's the biggest surprise of our entire lives. We just figured his wife wasn't talking to him for like a year. And that made more sense to us than Bruce Willis possibly being dead. It's so easy to miss the main point sometimes, especially if our expectations are set in the wrong direction from the beginning. We never expected the main character to be dead, so the audience missed the obvious truth. In our passage today, Paul reveals in the strongest terms the main point he feels the Corinthians continue to miss. Their expectations have been set in the wrong direction, and Paul fears they will miss the point of the gospel unless they allow themselves to really receive the truth. First, we start in verses 12 and 13, where Paul is desperate in, in a desperate state, waiting to hear from Titus how the Corinthian church has received his painful letter. He is so distracted by his desire for restoration with Corinth that though he has an open door for the gospel at Troas, he is simply too paralyzed to take advantage of it. Paul was expecting to meet Titus there, who was going to bring news of the Corinthians' response, but Titus wasn't there. He would later connect with Titus, as we see in chapter 7. But here, his spirit was not at rest. Even when he went to Macedonia, he said his body had no rest. He was really struggling. We see here Paul's heart. First, he is not ashamed to admit that he has weaknesses and that they sometimes actually impede him from the gospel work he felt called to do. Secondly, we see that he wholeheartedly seeks to build up the church, not just in number of bodies, but with authentic communities and meaningful relationships. Paul is an apostle, and apostles were called by God and sent by Jesus himself to organize and the strategic spread of the church. And the apostle Paul was desperate for a restored relationship with the church that he loves. In his love for them, he was trying to lead them, but the Corinthians had been rejecting and questioning his apostolic leadership. They were doing this because they were pretty obsessed with power and pleasure and success, and they thought poorly of Paul's suffering and his general lack of impressiveness. In this, their expectations were inaccurate. They were out of line with the purpose and promise of the gospel, and Paul sets out to show them the truth. The value of life is not found in success or power. Now let's dive in and read verse 14 together. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. At first glance, this verse reads in line with the expectation that God causes triumph and victory wherever he goes. Well, we know from the narrative arc of all of Scripture, including plenty of Paul's letters, that God does cause triumph and that through him we do have ultimate victory over death and all the brokenness in this world. But, this is a big but, in this particular case, Paul is not at all talking about our triumph, at least not in the ways we might hope for. A little dive into Roman history will help us out. The triumphal procession, Paul's readers would have immediately known, is in reference to something called the Roman triumph. This was the most spectacular victory parade you could ever imagine. A Roman general who had returned, from, returned victorious from a military campaign could be granted by the Roman Senate this lavish honor. 
It was an entire day of celebration. The general would ride a tall chariot led by four war horses. He'd wear a laurel crown and a fancy painted toga. I even read somewhere sometimes they painted their face red. In this procession, there would be examples of the spoils of war. Exotic animals or flowers from from wherever they conquered, and especially prisoners of war. Prisoners of war would be marched along in this procession. These prisoners burned incense as they processed, and the prominent prisoners were sometimes executed as yet another spectacle of the day's celebrations. Imagine the scene in Disney's Aladdin where Prince Ali Ababwa comes in to show his prowess and all the material wealth he's gained, but instead of the Middle East or in the Roman Empire, and instead of cartoon peacocks, there are prisoners of war paraded and led, some of them, to their death. It's kind of a little shocking. So let's take a step back here. We're seeing Paul thank God who leads him in triumphal procession as a prisoner spreading incense, and being likely led to his death. The verb tenses are clear. This verse is not about God causing triumph. It's about Paul being led in a metaphorical procession as a suffering prisoner, spreading the incense or aroma of Christ. The NIV actually gets at this a little by saying, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the knowledge of him everywhere. What do we make of this? Well, first, let's take a minute to adjust our expectations and receive the truth, lest we miss the point altogether. We'll first look at this truth as it applies to Paul, an apostle, and then as it applies to us. First, as it applies to Paul. Again, the context of this letter really helps us understand. Previous to the painful visit and the severe letter, Corinth had been visited by what Paul calls super apostles. That's something we'll talk about later because he uses that term later in this letter. They were very impressive people. They spoke eloquently. uh, They were materially successful, and they were perceived as powerful leaders worth following. And in comparison with Paul's suffering and poverty and ineloquent speech, the Corinthians rejected Paul in favor of these impressive apostles. Impressive. I use air quotes here because Paul refers to them in this passage by calling them peddlers. That's towards the end of the the pericope here. We don't use the word peddle too often, but um, I think of the musical Oklahoma where there's a peddler and his cart of goods, and he's so eager to make a sale, he fibs and swindles and sweet talks all customers into purchasing things they don't need, won't work, or are generally overpriced. Um, I like how one commentator put it, peddlers adulterate a product for improper gains. So these peddlers were impressive, they were paid, and they didn't tell the truth. The Corinthian church was expecting power and success. Paul didn't fit the bill, but the peddlers of the gospel did. In these misplaced expectations, they missed the point entirely, and Paul is determined to clue them in. The value of life is not found in success or earthly power, but in the way our whole lives especially, especially our suffering and failures, manifest the power of the gospel. Apostles are called to a life like that of a prisoner in a Roman triumph. They're called to suffer, and through their suffering, the church can be built up. The apostolic way of life is marked by suffering. This is the paradox of the Christian life. It can't be ignored, and if we do, we miss the point 
We're not apostles in the official sense, as Paul was. Even Christian, our rector, or steward, our bishop, are not apostles in this precise sense. But we are an apostolic church. We desire to strategically grow the church in maturity and to expand its members. We value the connection we have throughout history with these first apostles, and we desire to continue their work of spreading the gospel by, yes, following their example. Paul is making the point that we do not spread the gospel through the worldly victories we're so naturally inclined to expect and hope for. That won't do. When we strive in this way, we display a particular value system, the one of this fallen world, where we ascribe highest value to things that are fleeting and earthly treasures, and these things ultimately lead to nothing but death. What happens when we embrace a different value system, the one given to us in all of Scripture and espoused so strongly by Christ himself? What happens if, as Paul is demonstrating, we consider suffering to be the way of Christ? Well, Paul tells us, we keep reading, if we do that, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. So what's he saying? I think he's saying this. When we endure suffering with a gospel mindset, we display a different value system. We say to the world, this is not the way it was supposed to be, but we're not deeply threatened by pain or loss or failure or even death because we hold the promise and the power of the resurrection as gifted us through Christ. That means we have an entirely different set of expectations. Our hope for the future is certain and therefore our expectations and desires for this life on earth adjust accordingly. The value of this life is not found in success or earthly power, but in the way our whole lives, especially our suffering and failures, manifest the power of the gospel. Paul uses the metaphor of an aroma or an odor to emphasize how noticeable it is when someone lives this way. Paul's example is this. Every letter of Paul has a thanksgiving toward the beginning. And here's 2 Corinthians thanksgiving. He thanks God for leading him in a ministry that includes various hardships, sufferings, failures, and will likely lead to his death. That's what Paul's saying. He thanks God for this. Why? Because in this, he's able to give off the fragrance of life. And to those who know the saving power of Jesus, it's an aroma of freedom and love and of life everlasting. For those who don't know Jesus, who don't really know his saving power that turns the value system of this world inside out, this sounds ludicrous. Or should I say, it smells like the fragrance of death, of foolishness. This passage has strong connections, even many of the same words, as 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of, cross, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's take another step back. Look at the Roman triumph again. The sources I read discussed that the victorious general, processing through the streets and now overwhelming spectacle, intended to make a godlike impression on all who were in attendance. When Jesus was alive and the Jews heard he was going to be king, isn't this exactly what they wanted? 
Didn't they proclaim Hosanna and throw their cloaks down before him and hail him as the soon-to-be king who would lead them to military victory now and forever? That was the way their expectations were set. And yes, because of this, most of them missed the point. Well, shortly after the procession with all the Hosannas, Jesus allowed himself to be led in a different procession. One that went through the streets of Jerusalem as a captive. He was made bloody, mocked, and he was a prisoner. And he was led to death. Friends, our king, the omnipotent Lord of all, willingly suffered and died. And this makes the narrative story of redemption, as given in our scriptures, so singularly unique in comparison to all other concepts of the divine around the world and throughout history. In other stories, a God just doesn't die. That'd be ridiculous, foolish, weak. And yet our God, the true God, willingly suffered and died. Because he loved us. And his suffering and death spreads the fragrance, actually the substance of life. And here Paul is desperate to help the church at Corinth see this point. The one they've missed because their expectations have been set elsewhere. He wants them to see that he is an actual apostle. He loves them. He is following the way of Christ. In contrast with the peddlers or super apostles, he is sincere. He is commissioned by God. His suffering is actually evidence of his apostolic call, and it gives off the aroma of one who is living out of the power of the gospel. So this may seem kind of heavy for a summer Sunday, but I promise you the invitation to follow Paul's example here is very good news. It really is. And if you see this main point and you live this out, then I think these three things will happen to you. Number one, you'll strengthen your integrity and your faith in your witness. Number two, you'll increase your freedom and joy in this life. And number three, you'll deepen your walk with the Father. So here's number one. You'll strengthen your integrity and your faith in your witness. If we're followers of Christ, knowing that suffering is a part of life is way better than pretending it's not. Because I'm sorry, that's just not how life will work out. You know that. Because if anyone becomes a Christian believing that life is going to be easier, that they're never going to have heartache or failure, then they're set up. I mean, they're just set up for disappointment and disillusionment. Faith is dangerously fragile if built on the understanding that God ensures prosperity or power or safety. What happens when such a faith encounters suffering? That's a house built on sand. It falls. Now, God does indeed move in and among our lives. Oh my goodness, the gospel reading today. He wants to help us. He possibly to overcome difficulties or succeed in small, big, or even miraculous ways. He does do that. This was promised in scripture, and I've seen it in my life, and I hope you have in yours. God is big and loving and can help and heal and save and even resurrect And he asks us to bring every concern to him in prayer, and he meets us there. But we're not promised protection from all grief and suffering. We're not. And it's important to be clear about that right away, up front. So this first bit of good news is that the truth actually strengthens us. It gives us integrity. 
We understand God's promises and we don't set the expectations of others in the wrong direction from the start, lest they miss the point. This is good news because it lays the foundation for real and solid and lasting faith. Number two, you'll increase your freedom and joy in Christ. Now let me back up. Uh, Corinth was an epicenter of trade and commerce and culture. Um, Scholar Gordon Fee called it a combination of New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. People there aimed to achieve material and social progress and enjoy the pleasures of the world. Well, we live in 21st century America. And I'm grateful for a whole lot about this country, but there are some similarities. A quick story. Um, I met one of my best friends when I was living in Boston, and she was from Northern Ireland. And she just loves America. I mean, that's why she came to America to study. But she always liked to point out all the distinctions between our cultures. She often noted that Americans just loved things big and impressive. She couldn't believe how large our refrigerators were, for instance. The majority of our cars seemed uselessly massive to her. One day, I referenced how much I've loved Lake Superior. And she said, oh, how American. Of course, there's a lake in America called, America called Superior. <laughs> and I was so happy to be able to look her in the eye and say, it's actually the biggest lake in the world. It's an honest name. Um, well, anyway, I was right then, but in many ways, my friend wasn't that far off. There's certainly a tendency in our culture to glorify celebrities and strive for wealth, status, power, or maybe we're less audacious. We don't put ourselves in that category, but maybe we strive for financial security, independence, leisure. Such a hunger is actually exhausting and futile. It doesn't actually lead anywhere. It's an insatiable hunger that always leaves you feeling not enough. Who enjoys that feeling? And you know what? That feeling's actually a lie. When we shed that false burden, we literally can walk into a lightness. There's, there's a freedom in knowing God is the one who created and called you, and no amount of money or friends or accolades or likes or anything else will actually add to the value of your life as a disciple of Christ. Certainly, some of these things can make your life easier or more enjoyable, But some of the things that make our life easier or more enjoyable actually make it harder to follow Christ. So set the aim of your life toward Christ. Establish it on the foundation of the gospel, and there you'll find your true identity. And with it, the freedom and joy of being unburdened by the evaluation systems of this world. Number three, you'll deepen your walk with the Father. I've talked a lot about setting expectations in the right direction. Well, that is a really big part of it. But just like I don't think an Olympic athlete can set their expectations by acknowledging all the challenges and requirements of their upcoming competition, but never actually prepare for it, I don't think we'll be able to imitate Paul without some further dedication and preparation. We can't think our way through this. We have to practice for it. I think we can practice for this by walking with God every day, reading his word, communing with the family of God, meeting at the table, prayer, confession, praise, 
by pressing into the story of God and seeing our place in it, by fostering a sensitivity to God's presence in your life, by prioritizing a relationship with Jesus that establishes him as a trustworthy friend and with the Father on whom we trust and depend. This takes dedication and time and a commitment of the heart. And that relationship will grow. And God desires this relationship with us. He loves us. He wants us. And let's be here. God hates suffering. The point of all this is not to say that personal or collective suffering is actually good. It is precisely all that's wrong with the world. It was not the way it was supposed to be. God intended to dwell with his children in the garden without tears or pain or failure or injustice. But the fall ruined that plan and it brought suffering into the nature of our being. But God set in motion the redemptive story of Christ to end all pain and make all things new again. So he went to the cross, and he suffered, and he died for us. But it doesn't end there. Jesus suffered death and was resurrected and reigns with the Father now. And all this was to make it possible to end all suffering for his children, to look ahead to the new heavens and the earth, new earth, where like the garden we would walk and feast with God and with one another. And until that day, we walk with him in this already not yet period. And as we walk, we can partner with God in this work. So that means we join in his effort to restore all things and we work to end suffering or injustice where we see it. You might be saying, wait, didn't Paul thank God for this? Weren't you just saying we're supposed to expect suffering? Well, yes, but only in such a way that we live and proclaim the power of the gospel. When the Samaritan was suffering beside the road, the Jewish priest and Levite pass on by, and Jesus says, be like the Samaritan who stops and helps. We serve a king who suffered in order to end suffering. And we have to keep this paradox in mind. We live and proclaim the power of the gospel when we help suffering to cease. But in this life, we won't be able to cause the end of all suffering. And when we're, in, when we're discouraged or in despair for ourselves or for others, to whom do we turn? Paul has said earlier in chapter 1 of this letter that God is the God of all comfort. He meets us in our suffering and our despair, and he walks alongside us. He promises to minister to us in that place of need and nourish our souls. So I encourage all of us, deepen that walk. So Paul's example is a great one, but there are others around us who give off the fragrance of Christ like this. In small and everyday ways, maybe, of selfless love and humility and constancy, no matter the circumstance they're experiencing. And then there are dramatic examples of this kind of faith. The most dramatic being when faced with death. I think of the words a friend shared with me from a relative of hers when he discovered he was dying. It rocked him. And he said, Though my nine grandsons will not remember me, and leaving my family hurts, aches. Seeing Christ face to face is everything. I know you're shocked and sad at this news, but go deeper in your Christian story and you will see him. His work on your behalf, his mission complete when you come home safely. You will see his beauty, his character, and his promises shine. 
you too, you too will long for the day when all things are made new. Whew. And then I think of Mel and Sue Oz. They were longtime members here. Many of you knew them. They passed away in December of COVID. And I've been preparing music for their memorial service, so they've been really on my mind. And I think of their lives and their faith and their courage. I think of Sue's blog and her beautifully rich perspective on the purpose of life and beauty of the gospel and what awaited her when she arrived home. The name of her blog showed it. It was May 1st Everlasting. It's about heaven being with God forever, a phrase that demonstrated her expectant hope and the purpose with which she aimed her life. And I know that Christian had the opportunity to talk with Mel a few days before his death, and he told Christian that he was not afraid to die. There is an otherworldly power in living this way. It turns heads. It helps us not miss the point. The lives of people living this way give off the fragrance of life, of Christ. It manifests the life-changing, world-changing power of the gospel. And this is good news. And we're invited to live this way. Amen.